0: Hello, everyone. Um, Welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, My name is Doug Letterman. I'm editor of Inside Higher Ed. It's a national uh, daily publication about higher education. Uh, I want to thank all of you for being here and thank those of you who are watching uh, on the webcast. Um, First things first, uh, please turn off your cell phones and pagers. uh, I want to thank uh, the Cato Institute and Neil McCluskey here for uh, having this session and congratulate him for uh, timing this event so propitiously. Um, it's, this is certainly, I think, going to be the first of uh, what are likely to be many discussions about the work of the Commission on the Future of Higher Education in the coming months. And uh, Neil was uh, fortunate enough to be first out of the box on that. Um, for our topic today, Ivory Tower Overhaul, How to Fix American Higher Education. We're lucky to have an array of speakers who come from a, uh, a broad and, uh, set of backgrounds and perspectives, as I, think, as I suspect we're about to hear. Um, what they have in common is that they're all thoughtful, provocative, uh, and that should make for some interesting discussion, if not uh, entertaining theater. Um, before we get to them, Neil asked me to catch you up a little bit on how we got where we are. And in the interest of saving lots of time for for these panelists, who are the people you're really here to hear, uh, to share their thoughts and importantly for you to have a chance to question them, um, I'm going to try and do that in the shortest time possible. A little over a year ago, on September 19, 2005, Secretary Spellings announced that she would appoint a commission, and she did not in fact call it a Blue Ribbon Commission, which was a great break with Washington tradition, um, to study the future of higher education. Um, The announcement seemed to come out of the blue, given that this was uh, coming from a a Bush administration that had virtually ignored higher education for the first four or five years of its time in office. Um, But uh, Secretary Spellings had, in fact, held a series of meetings around the country in the preceding months talking to people in and around higher higher education about the issues facing the industry and the country um, and had contemplated such a review going back to her time in the White House domestic policy shop. Um, the roster of people that she appointed to this Commission included corporate people from IBM and Microsoft and Boeing um, included some people from nonprofit groups that are that work around and in higher education and, and public education uh, some scholars who study higher education uh, and, a, and a bunch of college presidents current and former from traditional institutions like MIT and Michigan uh, from uh, emerging institutions and, and the institutions that do the sort of heavy uh, lifting in higher education like community colleges, uh, so like Montgomery College locally, um, and colleges that represent the new wave of higher education, such as Western Governors University, which is an online institution, and Kaplan, Inc., one of the four big for-profit companies. Um, the panel is led, uh, was led by the person on my left, Charles Miller, who had recently completed a term as uh, Chairman of the Board of Regents at the University of Texas System, uh, and happens to be both a, a, an FOG and an FOM, friend of George and friend of Margaret. Um, I honestly uh, expected the commission to flop. Um, its agenda seemed am- amorphous and overbroad, um, and many of the members seemed to represent competing and uh, special special and often competing <laughs> interests, uh, which is usually a recipe for, for disagreement and ultimately disintegration. Um, and the historical track record was not good. Uh, most federal reviews of higher education uh, have rarely amounted to more than a hill of beans, as the, a lot of the Texans in town might like to say. Um, a year later, um, while one can quibble or even scream bloody murder uh, about the Commission's findings and recommendations, as, I'm, as some of those, those up here uh, might be about to do, um, it's obviously, and it's obviously too early to say whether the panel's work will produce meaningful changes. And even if they do, it'll be years before we know whether those changes are good or bad for, for public policy and higher education. But I think it is inarguable that the Spellings Commission um, and the Secretary, through the Commission, has put higher education on the public policy agenda, if not yet the public agenda, and those are two slightly different things, in a way that it had not been for quite some time. Through a mix of foresight and, I think, good fortune, she timed her moment well. She tapped into concerns about economic competitiveness uh, for the country internationally, about adult literacy, about the frenzy over admissions to elite colleges, um, among other things, and engaged a conversation that, um, and I can say this having spent almost as much time as Chairman Miller listening to them, uh, was at times contentious, it was at times predictable, but it was almost always at a a surprisingly elevated and thoughtful level. These were intelligent people um, grappling with hard issues and big ideas and doing so, it seemed to me, with with good intentions by and large. Um, And those aren't the kinds of things you hear journalists say in this town uh, very often. Um, Last month, the Commission formally voted by a margin of 18 to 1 to approve its report, which called among a slew of other things for a major focus on and investment in need-based aid, need-based financial aid, uh, more transparency and significantly more reporting by colleges about their finances and performance on a range of fronts, ultimately with the goals of, of limiting tuition increases and holding colleges accountable for the return on investment uh, from the large sums of public money that flow through them, um, and for better measurement of students' academic outcomes, including a, be- a way to track students who, as they move along uh, among and through different institutions, as, as students are increasingly doing today. Um, yesterday, and here's what I meant when I referred to Cato's good timing, Secretary Spellings gave a much-anticipated speech in which she laid out her agenda for carrying out the Commission's report. Um, If that sounds clear-cut, it it isn't. Um, It is very uncertain uh, how we get from point A to point Z. Um, And as I suspect you'll hear from the panelists, there are many questions from all sides about whether the Commission's uh, prescriptions are the right ones for what ails higher education. At the core is this fundamental question. How does a nation with a strong, vibrant, and completely decentralized system, and I put system in quotes, of higher education try to move that loose confederation toward a set of new world priorities on which there is general agreement without threatening to undermine it in the process. Uh, Helping us answer those questions today are our panelists. Um, I'm going to refer them in order in which they'll be speaking. Uh, For 30 years, Charles Miller was a highly successful portfolio manager, uh, founder of a mutual fund company, developer of an equities investment fund, and family portfolio manager. He got into the sphere we're talking about today, uh, as I mentioned, because of his role uh, on the University of Texas Board of Regents um, and because of his uh, close relationship and and the trust that the Secretary has in him as a a, uh, member of the the public. Um, Chris Nelson has been president of uh, St. John's College, a coeducational four-year liberal arts college in Maryland known for its distinctive Great Books curriculum since June 1991. Um, he also was an, uh, that's also his alma mater uh, practiced law for 18 years and was chairman of his law firm when he left that practice to take his position at St. John's he's also served on a slew of association and other boards including that of the National Association of Independent Colleges and Universities which has been throughout the work of the Sellings Commission probably its uh, most outspoken critic or certainly among them uh, Anya Kamenitz, on, on my far right, is a freelance journalist living in New York. Uh, in 2004, the Village Voice nominated her for a Pulitzer Prize uh, for, in feature writing for her work on the feature series Generation Debt, The New Economics of Being Young. Uh, her 2000 book, Generation Debt, is her first. In both the book and in her journalism, she has written about the economic upheaval facing young people uh, in their 20s and 30s, including, not incidentally, the rising cost of higher education and soaring student loan and credit card debt. Uh, And Neil McCluskey, on my near right, is a policy analyst with Cato's Center for Educational Freedom. Uh, Prior to arriving at Cato, uh, he served in the U.S. Army, taught high school English, and was a freelance reporter covering municipal government and education in suburban New Jersey. Um, More recently, he's a policy analyst at the Center for Education Reform. Uh, where he published papers on subjects ranging from uh, cyber charter schools to class size reduction. Uh, about to turn it over to them, a couple comments. Uh, after they speak, we'll t- have time to take your questions. Uh, I'll say this now and later. Please, questions, uh, not speeches, um, and please identify yourselves at, the point, at that point. Uh, at that, I'll turn it over to Charles. Well, thank you,
1: and uh, thank you, for, Doug, for that kind statement about the commission. It was one of the most interesting things I've ever been involved with, Some of my friends said, did you have fun? And I always respond, I I never thought of that word while we were doing it, but it was a very intense process and very challenging. And I'm very proud that we spent the year doing what we did. The secretary named the commission a national dialogue on the future of higher education and asked us to look at it from a long-term strategic standpoint, not from the short-term or intermediate-term things that we normally do, like the reauthorization and the short-term finances which we tried to do. It ended up possibly with some different things than some might have expected. And, Neil, thank you for setting this up and for your brilliant timing. Uh, I do believe this is a topic of immense importance, and I think it will get more and more attention over the next few years for a variety or confluence of factors that we'll talk about. Uh, I want to read from some things that I've just written to the Secretary. These are my opinions, not the opinions of the Commission, and I feel a little freer now uh, having delivered the report with the Secretary's response to say what I feel feel I need to say in my own words. Uh, In my opinion, it seems likely that higher education will undergo major transformation in coming decades from the same forces which are changing the world in other economic sectors and at other institutions. As noted in the conclusion section of the Spelling's Commission report, quote, the future of our country's colleges and universities is threatened by global competitive pressures, powerful technological developments, restraints on public finance, and serious structural limitations that cry out for reform. That's one of the most important things we say in the report. It was a conclusion. Those forces are very, very critical, and they are forces that control a lot of our lives today. The one that has to do with structural limitations in the colleges and universities are the ones we tended to focus on, because we can do something about it. But to be prepared for those forces is just as important as many other industries and sectors have found out. No matter how effective the U.S. system of higher education has been in the past, it seems especially vulnerable in its current state. The combination of advances in communications and information technologies have created exceptional opportunities for productivity improvements in other economic sectors such as financial services, manufacturing, and retail trade, even beyond changes resulting from outsourcing and globalization. The gains in U.S. economic productivity in the last decade have been exceptional by any historical or global standard. However, this has not been the case in higher education. A particular concern, serious concern to me, is the dysfunctional nature of higher education finance. In addition to the lack of transparency regarding pricing, which severely limits the price signals found in a market-based system, there is a lack of the incentives necessary to affect institutional behavior so as to reward innovation and improvement in productivity. Financial systems of higher education instead focus on and reward increasing revenues, a top-line structure with no real bottom line. And I can assure you, when I was chairman of the Board of Regents of the University of Texas System, I focused on optimizing the top line. I did that my job very w- well. I also didn't think that was a good long-term productive system for the community at large. And I learned a lot from that experience. In order to provide incentives for productive behavior or reward certain results, it's necessary to have an information system which provides results and identifies behavior related to those results. Currently, higher education is replete with <coughs> opaque, complex information systems which are not informative for governing boards, policymakers, and the public. These information systems also <coughs> provide limited capacity for institutional managers to find and adopt best practices or to make resource allocation decisions. Accountability measures in a regime of full transparency will be needed to address this shortcoming in higher education. Effective accountability systems will be needed to develop the most productive financial structure for higher education. We cannot address critical issues of affordability, for example, effectively without dealing with this effectively. Today, the dysfunctional financial system combined with the lack of transparent systems of accountability leave higher education in a dangerous position. There are some specific signs of stress, and I'm going to quote here from three academic leaders of substantial fame and very, very sound people. The one thing that surprised me the most in working on this commission was what I heard from the beginning about the tone of either my comments or the report. I ended up calling it the tone police. I heard it at the beginning. I heard it during the process. I heard it at the end. And I was very surprised because I heard it mostly from the academy. And so as I did my homework, I found people in the academy whose tone I thought was very strong and very critical, and I've tended to rely on that rather than my own language, but I feel a little more released to be able to speak in the tone I want to today, so I'll add some of my comments here. But the next three quotes are essentially from very important academic leaders. Uh, After pointing out the contributions of our top universities, Albert Carnesale, Chancellor of the University of California, Los Angeles, and former Provost of Harvard College wrote, quote, but growing disparities between the financial resources of private universities and those of public universities are creating inequities that could have damaging repercussions, not only for economic advancement and social mobility in our own country, but also for the ability of Americans to compete internationally. Close quote. More pointedly, from a book by Luke Weber and James J. D- Duderstadt n- entitled Universities and Business." partnering for the Knowledge Society. Duderstadt was a member of our commission, and Weber is one of the outstanding EU uh, uh, higher ed experts. Quote, the highly competitive nature of higher education in America, where universities compete for the best faculty, the best students, resources from public and private sources, athletic supremacy, and reputation, has created an environment that demands excellence. However, it's also created an intensely Darwinian <laughs> winner-take-all ecosystem in which the strongest and wealthiest institutions have become predators, raiding the best faculty and students <coughs> from the less generously supported and more constrained public universities and manipulating federal research and financial policies to sustain a system in which the rich get richer and the poor get devoured. Even further, as Derek Bach, Pre- President Emeritus and current interim president of uh, Harvard University, wrote in his book with the illuminating title This Spring our, our Underachieving Colleges, quote, however much professors care about their teaching, nothing forces them or their academic leaders to go beyond normal conscientiousness in fulfilling their classroom duties. There's no compelling necessity to re examine familiar forms of instruction and experiment with new pedagogic. Methods in an effort to help their students accomplish more. The (laughs) fundamental reason for the lack of such pressure is the difficulty of judging how successful colleges are in helping their students to learn and develop. It's a fundamental mission. Still continuing the quote. No published reports exist that reveals how much undergraduates have progressed intellectually, let alone how much progress compares across colleges. And then further he says, quote, As long as professors do not palpably neglect their students, colleges that do very little to increase the effectiveness of teaching and learning will not suffer a penalty since the consequences of such inaction will normally be invisible. No one will know whether they are falling significantly behind rival institutions in developing the mind (coughs) and character of their students, still less whether colleges as a whole are doing less than they might in these respects. Close quote. In my words, to finish what particularly concerns me is the spe- special resistance to accountability exhibited by a large set of private colleges and universities, and to some extent others. There is resistance to measuring student learning. There is also strong resistance to financial and other accountability systems inherent in their opposition to things like a unit record system. What elevates this concern is the fact that so-called private colleges, I have that in quote. And universities receive a large amount of support from the public, that is, from the taxpayer. These institutions receive an average, on average, an estimated 25% of revenues from the federal government in the form of financial aid and research funding. In addition, they receive a significant level of state and local support and benefit from tax policies regarding earnings and contributions. And they benefit from the use of local infrastructure and other things, and they compete with private industry without. Uh, the same penalties. In financial terms, it's difficult to classify most institutions as truly private, raising serious issues about transparency, accountability, and public trust. These are issues that need to be addressed by policymakers who appropriate (laughs) and spend public funds, as well as those institutions who receive and benefit from public funds. Another particular concern I have relates to our elite colleges and universities, Notably, our great research universities are looked upon as world-class and treated with respect. When they talk, we listen. When they ask, we usually give. However, (coughs) research expenditures are a major cost driver in higher education and need the same intense examination and skeptical analysis other financial issues require, especially since most of these are public funds. I think there is ample evidence that our great universities have much to account for and have great intellectual and financial resources to contribute, (coughs) yet often come to the public arena without taking full responsibility for their own imperfections, while at the same time demanding more of the scarce public resources. Tying these elements together is the theme that there is a need to examine higher education in financial terms with full accountability for sources of funds, which institutions get them and why, and how productively these funds are utilized for the benefit of the public providers of these funds. This should mean an examination of the whole system with no special rights for any recipient of public funds and no free pass for any type of institution, no exception for those ranking in the top tier or no exception for those bearing the arbitrary and often inaccurate label as a private institution. When we can say that danger lurks in higher education facing competitive technological fiscal and structural forces and create a dangerous time of possible tsunami power. We need to know everything we can know about these institutions. They're critical to the future of this country and of the world. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Charles. <laughs> Dr. Nelson?
2: Yeah, Chairman Miller has uh, called for a national dialogue on what can be done to improve higher education, and he's asked those of us charged with ministering to the needs of our students to initiate the dialogue. So I'm going to be offering these remarks in the spirit of that call uh, and in the language of the academy, which uh, may sound a bit foreign to public policymakers. Nonetheless, I intend them to serve as a brief reflection on how the nation's liberal arts colleges might speak to the concerns that we also share about access, affordability, quality, and accountability. Now, as St. John's College itself is but a flea on the elephant of higher education, I won't pretend to address these concerns or challenges uh, to those, uh, the the concerns or challenges of those other uh, two-year and four-year colleges and universities that may have some very different purposes. Our liberal arts colleges are communities of learning first and foremost. We exist to promote learning activity and to protect the conditions of learning. We want classrooms teeming with energy and conversation that come from students who wish to learn, because learning is desirable for its own sake. We distinguish liberal from utilitarian learning. (coughs) Earning a living, which is the object of utilitarian learning, is about means. And those means can be fairly easily assessed and measured. Making a life worth living, which is the object of a liberal education, is about ends. And those ends are measured best by the quality of a life lived over the full span of years. Not so easy to assess by any general measures. Liberal learning is about foundations and elements. Liberal education is elementary education in the highest sense. For this reason, what we teach is important. Curriculum matters. We should give our students material that will give them practice at thinking rather than pretend we can teach them how to think. Whenever we see colleges having a vigorous conversation about the curriculum, we should be heartened. It means that something's still at stake for students and faculty alike. We should promote the desire to learn over the mania to test performance. Success in passing tests will follow the former as night does the day. Therefore, we should construct academic programs that encourage the desire to learn for its own sake, rather than for the sake of the grade. This requires that we give attention both to the quality of the materials that we use to teach from, and our ways of giving them life in the classroom. <clears throat> Let's give our students matter that will be worthy of their love. After all, it's love that moves us to all the good in the world, including all the good that can be learned. We might even consider using the desire to learn as a criterion for admission to our colleges, for that desire will better determine a student's ability to learn than a high SAT score alone. We should abandon the language of the marketplace. We're not delivery systems. Students are not consumers. (coughs) Education is not a product that can be bought and sold. The familiar metaphors of the commercial world come easily to all of us and it's for that reason alone that we should be very wary of slipping into such talk. We may come to forget that learning is a cooperative activity requiring commitment and effort on the part of the student. A far more complicated interaction than the purchase of goods at the shopping mall. Diplomas are not bought and sold. They're earned. (coughs) We should own up to our commitment to serving the interest of the individual soul. Our duty is to the health of the individual. Good citizenship and well-paying jobs, good as they are, should never be seen by us as more than useful byproducts of our central activity. Our colleges nonetheless serve the public good, and we do this by helping to bring thoughtful adults into the world, adults who are free to think for themselves and free to choose paths of action that they consider to be best rather than those that are easiest and most expedient. we should embrace institutional self-examination but be wary of external means of assessment. With our students, we accept the wisdom of Socrates that the unexamined life is not worth living. Another way of putting this is that our students might as well be dead if they're not asking themselves who they are, what kind of world they inhabit, and what their place should be in the scheme of things. The institutional equivalent of that death is atrophy and stagnation. We colleges have unlimited ways to come to know ourselves better and to improve our campuses. We should admit this publicly and seek the support we need to improve ourselves. On the other hand, we should not fear to fight those silly rankings and so-called science-based measurements that take no account of the liberal arts that we're trying to help our students acquire. We should champion and fund the cause of broad and affordable access to our colleges and provide the means to complete the course of study with us. A liberal education does not recognize class or economic distinction. (coughs) A liberal education should be available to everyone with the desire and the ability to learn. No segment of higher education has done more to provide the economic means to those without the financial wherewithal than our national liberal arts colleges though this becomes increasingly difficult to do as federal and state financial aid programs are cut for our students. We applaud and support the call for more need-based student financial assistance from federal and state programs. As for cost, education is expensive because it requires the giving of the life of one well-educated human being to another, a devotion of time that cannot be compromised without being cheapened. We need to help people understand why this education is a veritable bargain. After all, none of us charges what it costs to educate a student, even one who's able to afford the, to pay the full tuition. Calls for efficiency and cost control are appropriate for our business offices, physical plant operations, and administrative services, but not for the kind of classrooms that I've been talking about. In the spirit of these principles, I offer the following brief reflections on four elements of the Commission's report. First, uh, the report has not spoken to the centrality of the faculty to what we are about in our colleges and risks leaving on the sidelines of the national dialogue those who most need to be at the heart of the conversation. We will not answer the question about the quality of education by addressing transferability of credits. That only helps us to focus on the degree as the end of education rather than on learning itself. Second, learning assessment ought to be an integral part of learning itself. It must be left to the classroom, to the faculty, and the local institution. Nothing can be gained by broad outside measuring instruments that cannot take into account what's going on between the student and the teacher, the student and the student, or the student and the books and equipment of the classroom. The report allows for such a solution, but encourages the worst tendencies in us to teach what can be measured, or to focus our attention on those things that are of least importance to living a thoughtful, examined life. Objectivity in assessment tools is useless or harmful when it measures nothing essential to the kind of learning we seek to foster, and I worry about that effect on higher education. Third, the report fails to recognize that its aims economic competitiveness, efficiency, productivity are not the highest aims of our democratic society, founded on the rights of all to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that education is a means to these goods, too. Lastly, the Commission's calls for a student unit record database serves none of the purposes that I've described. It serves only the interests of the data collection management and research industry. No one's made a credible argument that knowing the schools attended, classes taken, grades completed, and who knows what else for each and every person in the country will lead to improvement in the classroom. The connection is simply too remote. Why then, without a substantial hope of improving learning by collecting this data, would we want to invest so many millions in such an enormous undertaking and risk the privacy of our citizenry and the security of such sensitive data? As good as federal agencies are at protecting information, we've seen report after report in recent months of sometimes inadvertent, sometimes intentional, sometimes illegal release or theft of sensitive data on thousands and thousands of citizens. We need a more compelling argument that we've seen to justify such a project. If the point of collecting the data is to satisfy lawmakers that the investment of taxpayer dollars in financial aid programs is worth the expense there's, much more, there's more than enough data already out there to answer this question, and even if the data were somehow found wanting, statistical sampling could provide the answer without the need to create a cradle-to-grave catalog of each of our educational records. I want to thank you for the opportunity to be with you today, uh, but also a special word of thanks to an old friend, Charles Miller who's given so much of his attention to finding ways for us to do a little self-reflection on how we can be better colleges and universities. He served that purpose once before as the chairman of our finance committee at St. John's College in the 80s and 90s, uh, helping us put our financial house in order before moving on to bigger challenges. Thank you.
3: Well, uh, thanks very much for inviting me. Um, I'm really honored to be here and actually a little puzzled to be here with these extremely qualified people. But after thinking about it for a while, I realized that I'm probably here to talk about the students' point of view because I'm a journalist who spent the last couple of years uh, interviewing young people all over the country from all different educational backgrounds about their experiences and their challenges that they face and their view of life. And um, I was actually a little puzzled to hear Dr. Nelson talk about... You know, leaving at the margins those who are at the should be at the heart of this conversation because, in my mind, that's the students. Um, so students, what do they want out of a college education? Um, they want to be able to afford to go to college. They know the college is important. Um, they want to get something valuable out of their education, something to last them a lifetime. And they don't want to be lied to about the true nature and purpose of the institutions that they are entering and working so hard in. Um the reason that student advocates like me say the college is unaffordable of course is not because taking out student loans which is the major means of paying for college is a bad investment for the individual on average. Uh you know it still is a good investment no matter e- how almost as high as you can go with student loans it's still a good investment on a lifetime basis. However, most young people still perceive college as being unaffordable. And That is a paradox, I think, that comes because the people that need the help the most are not able to access the amounts of aid that they need, they're not able to get it in the form that would be most helpful to them, and it's hard for them to navigate the system, it's hard for them to understand what the true burden of paying back loans is going to be. And above and beyond all of that, of the individual difficulties that people face, I think that there's a basic unfairness to the way the system is organized that people imbibe, and it sort of it hurts everyone's view of the system, and and so what do I mean by that? Uh, a story that I often tell of one of the many people that I interviewed in my book is uh, a young man called Fred, who I interviewed him in the fall of 2004. At the time, he was 26. He was a student at the community college in San Francisco, a city college, um, and he was the son of Filipino immigrants. Um, until he turned 18, Fred's life was a classic American success story. His parents each had seemingly solid middle-class jobs. They saved money for him out of their meager salaries to go to college. Uh, He got himself a scholarship to an elite prep school um, and then was accepted to the University of California at Santa Cruz. However, at the time that he was accepted to college, his father lost his job due to military cutbacks. His mother was injured on the job, was not able to work for over a year. So Fred did what seems like the rational thing. He liquidated all of his savings just to pay for one year at the state university, which at that point cost $13,000. And reasoning that the following year that the financial aid assessment would kick in, that he would be able to get the financial aid he needed if he just persevered for that year. Um, Well, the fall semester rolls around of his sophomore year, out of that $13,000 in tuition, the University of California at Santa Cruz offers him $3,000 in financial aid. Uh, So he has a $10,000 shortfall that's far and away above the federal student loan limit that he could have borrowed for that year. He would have to either make up the difference in, with a combination probably, of student loans, private student loans, credit cards, and working a retail job. Um, And at that point, basically, Fred gave up. He dropped out of college. He decided that, and a lot of people make this decision, that when you turn 24, you're automatically considered independent for the purposes of federal financial aid. Therefore, if he just waits till he's 24, then he'll be able to go back and maybe get some more money then. So he's trying to follow the rules, he's trying to follow the system the way it's set out. Um, and so he quit school for several years, he went back, um, basically started over at the community college. And when I met him, there he was, 26 years old, living at home, didn't have the student loan debt. But what he did have was a huge burden of frustration. And, you know, he was a kid, he had the ability, he had the drive, he did everything right. He played by the rules, but the help wasn't there for him when he needed it. And so he put his life on hold. And he said to me, kids are scraping by, kids like me are scraping by, bloody knuckles on the ground, working their butts off, and they get nothing. Um, And that was a theme that I heard all over the country, that I hear all over the country, of people that say, I was raised to believe that if you work hard and play by the rules, you're going to be okay you know, you're going to be able to go to a good college and get that liberal arts degree, and it will set you for, for life. And However, despite all the money that's spent, it just doesn't work that way. Um, and I think that Fred's story stands for the way that the system that we have now is failing a lot of people. I mean, uh, you know, first of all, he has debt aversion, right? He doesn't want to borrow large amounts of private loans or credit card debt. Precisely become because he comes from an immigrant background where people work hard and pay for things in cash, uh, and then that is a system, a an aversion, a, a characteristic that affects a very large number of people that uh, face barriers getting into college because loan debt does not work the same way as grant aid. Um, so that's just my short statement from you know from the trenches a little bit of you know what the students have on their minds when they're looking at policy proposals that may be put into place, and I just wanted to spend a few minutes talking about solutions. Um, I have come to believe and agree that we do need some kind of cost controls, and I think that they should be implemented, uh, again, on a community basis, taking into account the opinions of students. Now, I happen to know that um, many public meetings of the commission were addressed or let's say, confronted by groups of students um, who came outside the <coughs> meetings and talked about the need for new, n- more need-based aid, which I believe was heard, and I'm very glad to hear that. And, But at the same time, I think that there's a broader effort that's being ignored, which is an effort to talk about the inequities in the student loan system, um, the fact that student loans are not the same as federal financial, as grant aid in effectiveness and in the way that they're experienced by people. And there are state movements all over the country where students are trying to influence the way colleges make budget and spending decisions. And the remarkable thing, I think, is that from the Minnesota State University Student Association to Student State PACs in Maine and Virginia to the Tuition Endowment Fund at Columbia University – You have students that are not looking for the bigger stadiums. They're not looking for the fancier recreation programs. They're not occupying the president's building to get a new uh, you know, some kind of new studies program. But what they're trying to do is get more merit-based aid and fairer student loan policies. So I think if we listen to the students, we'll be able to grasp the direction of uh, the way that reform should go. And one very, very major issue in the way that this federal student aid and federal student higher education uh, policies in general need to be reformed is it's really an elephant in the room when you talk about issues like transparency and accountability and that is the external system that is fed by the federal financial aid programs that is causes very large companies to make very large amounts of profits off of growing student loans and obviously I'm talking about the student lenders and to some extent also the for-profit colleges Sallie Mae, the company that dominates the student loan market, has exercised large amounts of cash and influence over the last decade to prevent measures that save taxpayer money, increase competition, and make it more affordable to go to college. It's a simple fact that Sallie Mae's profits come come from bigger and bigger loans, and their fastest growing source of revenue is people who can't pay back their loans, defaults, delinquencies. The politics of federal financial aid, I believe, are never going to benefit students as long as there is a powerful political lobby that is working against student interests. Sallie Mae obviously was created as a government-sponsored entity, just like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Um, And the idea originally was that it would use U.S. Treasury funds to purchase government-backed loans from banks so that banks could use the money to make more loans. Um, By the 1980s, however, Sallie Mae was already doing so well that it turned to Wall Street for its capital. Because of its implicit backing by the federal government, Sally Mae was able to raise enormous amounts of capital at low interest rates to buy and service student loans and to rack up tremendous profits in the process. During the 80s and early 90s, Sally Mae's assets multiplied eightfold. And there were reports in Congress that uh, Sally Mae officials were pulling in seven figure salaries and there was some talk of having a crackdown. And this was the political opening for the introduction of the direct loan program in, in 1992. Um, and the direct loan program, the way it works today, the F- Department of Education essentially borrows money from the US Treasury at minimal costs and loans it directly to students. Um, it has an income based or payment prop, uh, option which is a policy similar to many other countries where you pay a certain percentage of your income rather than a fixed payment. Um, it has uh, cancellation after 25 years and various other student friendly policies. Um, unfortunately. Uh, The original idea was to phase in the Direct Loan Program, phase out the Guaranteed Student Loan Program, but instead the two programs exist side by side. And today, a dozen years of government data from three different agencies show that the Guaranteed Student Loan Program costs taxpayers many times more than Direct Loans, including administrative expenses. Um, Now, for example, uh, OMB figures from 2004 show that the bottom line costs for government guaranteed loans are about 12 cents on the dollar, whereas Direct Loans cost less than a penny on the dollar. Now, there have been various attempts from various, um, let's say, politically informed sources to say that this is an incorrect way of calculating the costs. I think that the Center on Federal Financial Institutions has a definitive report on this. It's called Student Loans Modeling Federal Costs. It shows short and long interest rate scenarios, and it shows that in no case does the direct loan program ever cost more than the federally guaranteed student loan program. Um. So let's return to Sally Mae. Under current conditions, um, Sally Mae receives 98 to 100% of the value of defaulted loans. There is no cap on the penalties, fees, and interest added to the capital that can be accrued while a loan is in default or delinquency. Um, Sally Mae also owns one of the biggest collection agencies in the country, Aero Financial Services. They keep up to 25% of the loans that they recover. So under a best-case scenario, they could collect over $150,000 on a $30,000 loan. Um, that area, debt management, collection, delinquency, default, and all the fees, is Sally Mae's fastest growing source of revenue. Um, Since 1998, direct loans have now dropped to less than 23% of all student loans. Sally May has won more than $1 billion in new loans from schools that formerly participated in direct loans. And in 2004, Sally May's market share beat that of the direct loan program for the first time. Um, According to the Star Act, which has been introduced more than once in Congress, uh, by switching to the direct loan program, we could save $60 billion over 10 years out of the federal budget for higher education aid. And it's more than the money that's at stake. It's the question of, you know, do we want to sell out our financial aid programs to make a few com- companies rich? As long as those companies are out there and able to freely participate in our political system to contribute to many, many uh, congressmen and representatives, such as our House Majority Leader John Boehner, who is the highest recipient of uh, contributions from Sally May. Um, as long as they're out there, I believe that true reform is going to be very, very difficult. And I believe that students like Fred are going to perceive that the system is not fair and that, they're, and that it's not being uh, run in their interest. And they're going to wonder why. They're going to wonder why they worked so hard all of their lives only to find that the help was not there for them when they needed it. Thanks, Tom.
4: I'm going to break with tradition here and use the podium because I brought props. I want everyone to be able to see them. Uh, I also want to thank everybody who came for this panel uh, made this really uh, an informative event. Um, most of you are probably familiar with the concept of opposite day. Uh, you know a day usually kids designated as the day when everything is the opposite of what it should be. Uh, well since September of 2005 when Secretary Spellings first assembled her commission on the future of higher education. The US Department of Education has, to an extent, seemed to be caught in opposite year. That sounds preposterous, of, co- of course. I mean, opposite day, sure, that makes sense, but opposite year, come on. Still, what else is one to surmise from a year long process that has ultimately resulted in a proposal to take American higher education, which, as people have testified here, is hands down the envy of the world and by imposing new federal controls on it, make it more like our elementary and secondary education system, an ever more centralized system that few developed uh, countries in the world would ever want. Now, if you don't believe me about the reputation for America's ivory tower, uh, let the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development tell you. In their most recent report looking at the education systems in all their member countries, they said, and I quote, the United States remains by far the most popular destination for international students, with 22% of foreign students world wa- worldwide enrolled in that country. And that's after 9-11, so the numbers are a little down from previous years. Now contrast that to elementary and secondary education. Do very many people from outside the country clamor to get in here to go to our elementary and secondary schools? No. And what have we gotten from the No Child Left Behind Act, which Secretary Spellings has used to an extent as the model for her higher education reforms? As numerous organizations have observed, No Child Left Behind is actually pushing standards down, not up, and has had no demonstrable positive effect on academic achievement. Despite this, Secretary Spellings told the Chronicle of Higher Education uh, a couple of days ago that when it comes to higher education, and I quote, the purpose here is to figure out how to have better information, better understanding about higher education in America as a consumer good. It is the same kind of thing we have done in K-12 through education. So just as has been done in K-12 through education, the envy of no one, the commission has recommended and the secretary has proposed massive new federal intervention in higher ed, currently the envy of everyone. Unfortunately, there is not sufficient time for me to hit on all the problems in the Commission's report uh, and the spellings and Secretary Spelling's resulting proposals, so I'll just discuss three big ones, which I'll dissect in a minute. The first are proposals for uh, large new federal data collection efforts, including a unit record database, which President Nelson has talked about, federal incentives for colleges and universities to measure outcomes. Um, however defined, and an enhanced federal website to help students pinpoint colleges that meet their desires. Second potential problem is a thrust to increase need-based aid, perhaps in a very large way, though so far Secretary Spelling has been noncommittal on the level. The third and final potentially large problem is the Commission's recommendation for a national strategy for lifelong learning which could be driven by the federal government and could easily be taken up uh, in a higher education summit that Secretary Spelling said she'll be holding this spring. Let's break these three problems open a little. The first problem, as I mentioned, is federal data collection. This uh, thrust has been predicated on a supposed lack of information for consumers of higher education. Uh, Secretary Spellings, as a result of this, is calling for those new and enhanced databases and data collection by the Department of Education I spoke of earlier. If these new systems were to be put into operation, unfortunately, they would likely be the gateway to much increased federal control in future years. Federal data lets politicians all too often cherry pick statistics to show the supposed need for further federal action to fix problems and then ultimately leads to intrusive federal action so politicians can show how much they care. The assertion about a dearth of data for consumers, however, um, can actually be used as a case in point of how political process takes problems and blows them up into something bigger than they are. Data on colleges is actually fairly abundant. Have you ever gone into your local bookstore and looked at the college guide section? Yet many people talk as if that data is not readily available and then, and I should say, this is with very good intentions, I don't mean to disparage anyone, but they use that, that assertion to advocate an expanded federal role or government role in schooling. I have just a couple of examples. One mentions Chairman Miller, but like I said, this is endemic to people talking about higher education. Uh, September 15th New York Times story reported on surprisingly low six-year graduation rates at, at a number of colleges, largely centered in Illinois, and, and the article said, and I quote, Charles Miller said that if graduation rates were more readily available, universities would be forced to pay more attention to them. And then Mr. Miller said, universities in America rank themselves on many factors, but graduation rates uh, rates aren't even in the mix. They don't even talk about it. But they do. Uh, Indeed, after reading the article, I looked at the much maligned U.S. News and World Report rankings, which this is my prop, in case you haven't seen it before, Uh, and I actually found the schools in question. Um, Right here, in fact, I've marked it, if anyone wants to know the page number later, just ask. I found the Chicago State University. Uh, And this was um, pulled out in this article as having a shocking 16% six year grad rate that supposedly no one knew about But it's right there. And that graduation rate is incorporated in the rankings of these colleges. I'll give you one more example, and this is from Secretary Spelling's um, Chronicle of Higher Education interview. Uh, two days ago, in which she said we need a federal internet tool to help consumers find colleges. She said, if I'm in in Virginia, and I'm looking at Virginia and North Carolina schools, and my daughter is interested in engineering and Spanish, and we hope to have her go to a publicly funded institution, those are the sorts of flags you could put in, and those could net out a list, and you'd know something at the end of the day. I wish I had something as a parent when I was shopping for schools. Well, she probably did. Yesterday, I went on Peterson's planner right on the internet, put in the criteria that she specified in the interview, and I got a list of schools that matched her requirements. I now know that North Carolina State University, or UVA, fit right into Secretary Spelling's daughter's needs, and I found it on a free website. Of course there could always be more data, but ultimately what's available should be driven by consumers, not by the government. And suppose really good student learning data, however you define that, isn't out there. Maybe it isn't necessary. Without test, employers have used schools as proxies for graduates' abilities, and that's generally worked. I mean, you haven't seen too many complaints that Harvard grads just aren't cutting it anymore. Uh, And then there are all the international students. Why would they keep coming here if they weren't getting anything from it? Second problem is the increasing need-based aid proposal. Now, the commission recommended focusing more aid on the truly poor, which is, is a terrific idea, and I don't disagree with that. Unfortunately, the Commission stopped short of saying that aid should be focused on the poor and eliminated for all other students. That avoided, regrettably, attacking the crux of higher education's major biggest problem, which is rampant price inflation, which is driven by government aid that has allowed students to demand more and more pricey amenities, celebrity professors, fancy dorms, and other indulgences. Think about it. If you give a a potential student $10,000 for higher education, he'll demand $10,000 worth of stuff. If you give him then $12,000, he'll up his demands. In the aggregate, that leads to all students demanding more, forcing colleges to offer nicer, more expensive things just to compete. Uh, The aggregate aid and cost numbers strongly suggest that this is in fact the case. In fact, aid growth has greatly surpassed price inflation. Well, the average cost of tuition fees, room, and board is up roughly 80% at four-year schools over the past 20 years. Aid per full-time equivalent student is up 163%. And yes, grant aid, too, has risen more quickly than tuition fees, room, and board. Sadly, while the Commission acknowledged that aid is likely contributing to inflation, it also resorted to easy scapegoating of decreasing state subsidies for the rise in tuition and that's not totally off. Inflation-adjusted per pupil student aid, state aid, sorry, to colleges has dropped since 2001. But 2001 was a record high. And what happened between 2000 and 2005? A recession, of course. So obviously it went down. And if you look at the pattern on state funding for their colleges, it's always cyclical and there's no sign of a permanent decrease in state aid. Unfortunately, as many policy uh, policymakers would like to ignore, There's only one way to ground the cost skyrocket, and the Commission, I think, needed to be more forceful in calling for it. And that's making the consumers of education, not the taxpayers, pay for much more of their own education. The Commission, in fact, backed away from this, dropping a passage in an early draft of their report that would have let the public know that private loans are available and ought to be looked at. Why did they drop it? In large part, it seemed pressure from the student aid lobby. Which brings up an important point, and my next prop: uh, no taxpayers or average people, if you want to call them that, were on the commission. Only higher education insiders, largely and business people, is there any wonder that while they certainly differed on many of the issues that they discussed, none really looked at the funding cut solution, and that they ultimately sort of bowed to uh, pressure from student groups. Um, but letting the people who receive the funds police what funds they receive certainly is not restricted to the commission. Uh, and I would point you to the public or to the policy analysis which was out outside if you got one, budgeting in Neverland. Um, i didn 't write it, so this isn't shilling for myself. Um, but if you look at that, it talks about how having the fundees say what the funders should give them is commonplace in government policymaking. The third and final um, a problem I want to address is this idea of forming a national strategy for lifelong learning proposed by the Commission. Essentially this is a blanket license for the feds to do really whatever they want ultimately and is all predicated on the assumption that in the coming decades everyone will need post secondary education and most will need college degrees. But can the Commission or the Department of Education really predict the future? Apparently they have trouble even divining the present. Uh, According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, eight of the top ten fastest growing occupations do not require bachelor's degrees and some don't need any post-secondary education. And if post-secondary education is really needed, why would we ever think that a national strategy would supply the options we need? Did such a command and control economy work for the Soviet Union? No. Whereas Marcus give us options ranging from Apex technical schools, Strayer University, Microsoft systems certification, whereas government, in contrast, has given us a system of failed public schools. The big problem, it seems, might actually be that too many people are being pushed into college by government crying wolf that everyone needs a college education. Given that message and all the aid that government provides to coax people into higher education, It's really not a wonder that more than a quarter of freshmen nationwide need remedial courses in math, reading, or both, and that the percentage of college graduates scoring proficient proficient in prose literacy is down from 40% to 31% over the last decade. Of course, our dismal elementary and secondary education system bears a lot of blame for poor college preparedness, as the commission rightly points out. Far too few students graduate with college level skills, if they graduate at all, uh, to fill the college seats the policymakers think should be filled. But that begs the ultimate question here. In light of higher education's success and elementary and secondary education's failure, (laughs) why would anyone ever want more government involvement in America's ivory tower? The answer, unfortunately, is based purely on politics, not educational merit, ultimately. What government funds it will eventually control so that politicians can show how good they are at making things quote unquote work. Whether that ends up being destructive in the end sadly becomes irrelevant. Thank you and I look forward to your questions.
0: Uh, Thanks all for your comments. Um, uh, Charles, since uh, you seem to uh, you get, there were sort of criticisms of the Commission from multiple sides, I guess I, I wanted to ask you, do you agree with the idea that this report calls for either calls or opens the door for massive federal intervention? Um, and and how does how do you square do you think that it's um, what's the explanation for why? higher education, which has rightly been seen, I think, as as successful for so long, Uh, why why, why is the moment time for that kind of intervention, if that's what you see coming?
1: I'll try to answer it succinctly. There's a broad set of statements in there. I I personally, and I don't think the commission (coughs) said or ever intended to say massive federal intervention was necessary. We collect data in all sectors of the economy for the use of the whole economy. The U.S. government does that better than almost any place in the world. I don't think you depend on the Chinese government get data. You might be able to depend on OECD, but we collect data for all the purposes that you'd want. The federal government is the only place you can do some of that. We do it in the labor market. We do it in industries. We do it for the Commerce Department. We do it for census purposes. The federal government has a natural role, and we suggest that there's more data that needs to be collected that isn't. We, co- we do collect a lot of data on higher education, but, for example, we don't have much of the right data for what's now a traditional student, but what we used to call a non-traditional student. Forty-five percent of our students are in community colleges. Many of them are adults and past the eighteen to twenty-two year old group that we normally reflect on in that in that sort of model of what we think a college is. And many are going to continue to learn throughout their lifetime, and they are going to get that uh, teaching and learning either from the from the uh, traditional colleges and universities or as they evolve into something else or from the private sector, not just the for-profit educators, but mostly the corporate world who does have to retrain and retrain and retrain. Their comments to us, and there's a lot of evidence, is that the colleges aren't producing what they need for the future workforce. There's a lot of evidence about that. Whatever the OECD says or the London Times There is a lot of evidence that teaching and learning isn't adequate for the future at colleges and universities. And we need to find out more about why that is. Students do transfer a lot. There's a significant percent of students that go to three or four or five institutions before they finish whatever that course is. Almost 10 percent go to five. They do some of it simultaneously. Kids today, the ones coming in the labor force, in the academic community, learn and get their inputs different ways. They don't get it even from one institution or one source. They get it in the ear and in the eye and other places. So we have a lot of that going on today, and we don't know much about it. We spend over $300 billion uh, at the state, local, and federal level, and the federal government puts a third of that in, so it's not like they're in the federal role. And we've spent that mu- we spend that much, and we really don't know much about the effects of that. We are almost uh, flying blind and in the dark, and we really don't know. So when policymakers are making decisions or the stakeholders who are the consumers, the public... Their their families, the kids, the students, and the taxpayer, any way you want to say it, we don't know what we're doing very much in higher education. We just, we just need more and better data. And technologically, there is so much better information available to be collected today, and there are changes going on. What I hear from these responses is, we like it the way it is. We're the best in the world. Send us the money and leave us alone. That's the old message. Well, I've heard that from every complacent, declining industry that I've ever analyzed as an analyst, and I could give you a list of them. The masters of the universe, they're famous for not accepting the realities of change, and we think there are these forces that are affecting higher education that are going to make us change. Already are. We heard the literacy decline from college students It's serious over the last ten years. We're not getting what we need from higher education. We do need to do something. I don't have prescriptive answers. I think it would be a mistake to say the government, the federal government needs to do it. But like healthcare 20 years ago when prices were going up and everybody said we have the best in the world, the doctors loved what they were doing, the hospitals loved what they were doing, people said leave it alone. <clears throat> and we did. But periodically we got interventions. Beyond the control of those people because we had to do something. So hospitals became antiquated and we had hospital management companies that took over private and charitable hospitals. We changed that a lot. And then we had HMOs come in and the insurance industry began to manage healthcare. And then the federal government and the state governments got more involved in, in the healthcare system and more and more involved because they didn't affect a strategic vision of. Medicine and healthcare, and they didn't believe what the consumer was saying, which is you're charging me too much, and the quality's going down. And there was no measurement of efficacy or results, and there isn't still much in medicine. And they have an antiquated financial and an antiquated uh, uh, reporting system today. Doctors, half the time, guess what they're supposed to do, not really know when they could know. So I'm saying, and I think the commission would say, if we don't accept the fact that these changes and this danger lurks, these changes are needed. There will be federal intervention. There will be forces that take over. There will be other competitive results in other countries or with private sector or whatever, or we'll fail what what our basic mission is. I watched the discussion this morning about the Dow Jones making a new all-time high. It's it's within an inch of it. And I thought to myself, going back 40 years when I began the business, what the companies were that made up the Dow Jones, you know, the big, solid parts of American blue chips. Anaconda, Alcoa, Bethlehem Steel, Chrysler, DuPont. Eastman Kodak, General Foods, General Motors, International Harvester, IBM, International Nichols, R.J. Reynolds, Sears, AT&T, Westinghouse, U.S. Steel, Woolworth. Blue chips. Well, this rate of change is very much faster than indicated by names like this. We won't know what's hit us if we don't uh, observe and understand these forces are on our on our doorstep. So I do think there needs to be better data. And more accountability to all the stakeholders, is isn't just the students and certainly not the academics. It's everybody that pays for it, and we all pay for it. And we need better policies, whether or not they come from the federal government, which I hope they don't. But policies come from the state, especially, states especially, and they don't have a clue what to do because they don't have information about their about the results of their spending. And I think it's going to come from them anyway, not just from the federal government. So my forecast would be hopefully we'll get this dialogue out there and people will face the reality and will respond favorably. And because if they don't, they'll be like the crab in the pot. As the water gets heated, they're going to they're get boiled
4: with the, with the heat.
0: Neil asked to respond to that quickly, and then I'll turn to your questions. If you could raise your hand, and I'll uh, try and identify you.
4: But I'll, I'll be real quick. I, I do want to say, though, that I'm,
0: I'm almost certain,
4: I saw it in the commission report and that spec- Secretary Spelling has said one of the reasons they want to collect more data is to guide policy and inform policymakers so they know what to do. So the implication of that is it will be used for further government action. Second, I would say people tend to know what they need better than government does, and you can look at the effect of a lot of government control in elementary and secondary education or the Soviet economy to see that government cannot plan as efficiently as people themselves acting independently can. Uh, and finally, I would just want to say that I would agree completely when you say it is wrong for the federal government to supply a third of the money for higher education and then there be no accountability for it. The problem, though, is that, that, that the government is supplying that money to begin with which really distorts people's desires to get the most efficient education they can because largely someone else is paying for it. So I would say, and, and you can look at the medical system and you see the same thing. So when you say, well, the medical system didn't want to change, healthcare didn't want to change, it's because so much of the purchase of cons- or consumer power was subsidized. And you've got to get rid of that subsidy if you want any system to run efficiently.
1: Let me, say, let me say real quickly, because I agree with everything you just said. In fact, I think the third-party payment system is the Achilles heel of higher ed if we don't know what the results of the expenditures are. I wouldn't personally say we should get rid of federal or state support for higher ed. I think that would be the thing we did the best that other people did the worst. But I agree with all the rest of what you said. That's the danger that we have these third-party payments in higher ed, and we don't address it, which is what happened in health
0: Young man in the white shirt back there, please. Wait for the microphone, please.
5: Uh, My name is Deep Shaw. I'm actually currently a student at the University of Georgia. I'm a junior. And as someone who just went through this process, I want to speak to something (coughs) that President Nelson said, that we shouldn't define this in terms of a business. But I can tell you that from my junior year, I was treated like the ultimate consumer in this process, with advertisements coming from all around me and phone calls and mail-outs and all these kinds of things. And... The, more, the, the universities that vigorously pursue you are typically private universities in my experience. And my question is is if you know federal and state money goes so much to public universities more than it does to private, why doesn't the federal government and state government spend more money um, in my home state of Georgia on advertising for those public universities? And second, I want to speak to the message I think that we still get, which is that the elite universities train you better than state universities. And in today's you know, society, I don't think that's true. I mean, obviously, I chose to go to a public university. And I want to know why those messages aren't being set out by the people funding those schools, which are the federal and state governments. So I guess it's directed mostly towards Mr. Miller. Thank you.
6: Uh,
2: you're directing that toward me? Uh, I
6: guess
2: you. Well, I've never heard anybody asked for more federal dollars to private advertising before. Uh, so I don't even know how to respond to that. Or Did I misunderstand? Yeah. Or, 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 or to public school advertising? Yeah.
5: Or, I mean, state or federal money, why don't they more vigorously pursue students to go to those
2: public money universities? Yeah, my, my experience is that they pursue them uh, perfectly sufficiently to their purposes. That is, uh, they're, they're enrolled. Their, their enrollments are growing. Um, they don't need... Uh, to spend more money on advertising. They need to spend more money on the classroom. They need to spend more money on things that count. I, I want to add something, though, but where I think state and federal investment has been extremely important and has leveraged private money in, in a way that people have not spoken to yet. And that is, once upon a time, this federal financial aid system uh, underwrote a high percentage of the cost of attending private and public institutions. And over the years, as costs have grown, that percentage has dropped substantially. What happened? Did the poor stop coming to the colleges and universities? No. Because, in fact, the federal investment in financial aid has been growing very rapidly. Why? It's been growing not because the aid to individual students is going up. That That number has been frozen for the last five years at $4,050 in the Pell Grant program. It's growing because there really is access uh, being granted to millions and millions of more people across the country. Who's paying for the cost of that education? In most cases, it's the private institutions and the individuals that support them. So you look at St. John's College, 25% of our operating budget goes back for need-based financial aid. 100% of it is need-based. we get just enough information out there, we think, so that you would know about that. Uh, and where does it come from? Well, about 3% comes from the federal government, and about 4.5% comes from the state. And the rest is coming uh, from private donors or from our operating budget. That's not an untypical story. That, that's the kind of thing you hear all over. Somebody had a kind of a genius that the colleges started to take on the load of uh, state and federal government to support that public policy that we need to provide more need-based financial aid uh, to students across the country. It's worked, but, boy, it's putting a lot of pressure on those colleges, and we need more support. We don't need a $12 billion cut in a loan program like we just got. You know, if we'd use that $12 billion and put it into the Pell Grant program, we could have doubled the Pell Grant. That's where that investment needs to go.
0: Next question, sir, here
7: working yes. my name is Ed Rockefeller I call myself a competition law Institute I'd like to ask a question for information not make a speech and not make a debaters point the uh, federal government maybe ten years or so ago had an antitrust proceeding against the Ivy League cartel <coughs> MIT fought the case and lost. A court of appeals in a muddled decision sent the case back. The federal administration changed and the government more or less washed out the case. Can anybody on the panel supply any information about the Ivy League cartel in the aftermath of that decision is the Ivy League cartel still alive and well Thank you Yes
0: <laughs> Well actually the GAO just issued a state uh, a report on on what has happened in the wake of uh, in the wake of the uh, that decision and, and there's there's actually a there are continue to allow they're they continue to be allowed to uh, cooperate on on a very narrow band of, of uh, issues um, I'd commend you to that report but I don't I'm, anybody else want to take that yeah, it was a case against collusion on on
1: prices and admission and the colleges lost there's some people say that that hurts students or not I, the way i see it is there's a limited number of Seats at most of the Ivy Leagues—they don't expand it much. If there is much of an expansion, it's just a tiny uh, 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 drop in the bucket. That is how people rate this internationally. But they're a limited number. There are more and more students all the time worldwide who want to go there, so prices get driven up even among the richest. It's what I describe it as is an oligopoly in economic terms. You have a limited number of providers, and they can pretty well control. The prices that professors get paid and all the rest of it, just like uh, Duterstadt talked about, they devour the others. So it is a monopolistic system. I don't know that anybody's a bad guy because of it or it's evil or anything like that. It's just how it's evolved. But I think it needs to be on the, in the open discussed. In other words... Why don't we have more of those, and why would we want to put continued new resources in some of the places that are the richest in the world and aren't adding supply? In a real market, you'd add more places, you'd add more seats, you'd have more universities. We don't have that. So we do have some problem there. We need to deal with it. I, I, and I think that is part of the thing that's driving costs and prices up, one yeah. of the factors. You know, Next question. Question.
2: I've never heard anybody uh, in higher education since that decision uh, say anything but this. As soon as a question of price or cost is raised, they say, sorry, we cannot talk about that. I mean, they can talk about what they're doing and what they've done, but in terms of collusion, about what they should be doing next year, what the tuition raise is going to be, they're scrupulous about that. Every time I, I'm in a group of college presidents, I, I hear, you remember the <coughs> law.
6: Boom. That's, that, that's just done.
0: The front row in the back here.
6: American Studies. Uh, Maybe a quick question for Mr. Miller and Ms. Kamenetz. Uh, You read a list, Mr. Miller, of the uh, blue chip companies from, I don't know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And my suspicion is if a commission had been set up at that time to try to study what the future is going to be like, come up with recommendations on how we can keep our competitiveness, collect information, international harvester, and Woolworth and Sears would still be the blue-chip companies today, but in much worse condition. We would not have had Google and Microsoft and the innovation that occurs in the marketplace when private individuals make the decisions and not government commissions. Uh, Ms. Kamenetz, your story I thought was very was that heart-wrenching about this yeah. young man. Sorry,
0: did, was there a question in there?
6: Well, my, well the, the question is, I guess, is... Wh- yeah, the, I guess I did, left off the question, which is, <laughs> could you comment on the fact that we heard that there's the University of Phoenix, there's Strayer, there's tremendous innovation in higher education that is meeting consumer demand, that's meeting the demands of the marketplace, and uh, it was mentioned in the, the remarks there, and I, I wonder why you don't recognize that, or perhaps you do, and my quick question for Ms. Kaminitz was uh, the, the very heart-wrenching story you told about the young man, uh, his difficulties, I'm sure there are a number of stories like that, but there may be also thousands of stories of young men... Unfortunate conditions, losing parents, not having the income who were able to take advantage of private or public loans and get an education and, and meet the American dream. So, in some sense, the system's also providing lots of great opportunities for
0: students. There's a question there? Yes,
3: there's a question there. Comment on that.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs>
0: I guess that's a question.
3: Um, well, uh, in this country, if you come from the top 25% of uh, earners, you have a 1 in 2 chance of getting to college. If you come from the bottom 25% of earners, you have a 1 in 17 chance of getting to college. Or to put it another way, the smartest dumb, the smartest poor kids go to college at the same rate as the dumbest rich kids. So we do not have a meritocratic system. We don't have a level playing field from a class point of view. Um, I tell a story that's illustrative of many different types of problems in the financial aid system, from the inflexibility of uh, taking into account your last year's income to uh, simply the growth of uh, the cost of the state universities. So, uh, you know, there's a discrepancy there, and loans, again, do not uh, bridge the cost for many people. Um, You may say, well, there are many, obviously, many. Jobs that do not require a college degree, as as Mr. McCluskey mentioned, eight of the ten fastest growing jobs in the next century do not require a college degree. I believe only about twenty seven percent of the jobs in our economy require a college degree all over overall. However, uh, at least the top ten of the two thousand five uh, Occupational Outlook Handbook included jobs such as food service preparer. Uh, janitor, customer service representative, waiter and waitress, and uh, nurses aide. So um, these are the jobs of the future. Can
4: I, I just want to add a couple things over really quickly. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to just mention what President Nelson said that you shouldn't run schools as a business because <laughs> they're there for learning, not profit maximization, what have you. And I agree with that. The problem is that you're asking not to run a school in a business when people are going there with the money of a taxpayer, someone else. And don't we owe that taxpayer at least that their money will be used as efficiently as possible? If you want to have higher education not run as a business, then the people doing it must be using their money voluntarily to get that. And uh, I would say that the important thing about that is it's, A, not right right to force people to fund someone else's education, especially or regardless of how they want it delivered. And it relates to the story that, that, that Anya told which is that we, we often hear stories about people who had trouble affording higher education, but we never hear about the nameless, faceless taxpayer who is having money taken from them to pay for that who might not be able to pay for something they need or want. And the most important thing about that is all this third-party payment leads to these massive inefficiencies which don't help anyone. So. We might say that higher education is a higher value than we should let the market dictate, but the fact that we don't let the market dictate how it runs is the cause of all its major problems.
1: I'm not sure which I, John, because that's exactly how I feel. I believe that information is what's missing. In a market system, when we have a public company that goes public, it's required to give a lot of information to public shareholders, and we don't have that. We don't have outcome-based information in higher education. We don't have it for a broad segment of higher education. We just don't have it. And the people who are paying the money, not the students, not just the taxpayers, philanthropists, anybody who pays the money ought to know more about what they get for the money. And they don't know much. It's been on faith, and it's been at a relatively low price, and it's been successful. But that time is over. We're reaching an inflection point because of the cost because of the shifts of who's paying for it and because of the international competition and the question raised earlier about innovation, that somebody is going to be able to create a model, whether it's in this country or somewhere else, and it might be in the private sector, hopefully it would be in in the combination with existing institutions, that does this better and cheaper, that creates the skills at a lower price. And that's why these companies that were on this list don't exist. I'm, hope, I'm hopeful that'll happen. That's the good news. If that doesn't happen, this great institution we have would be obsolete, and somebody else is going to leapfrog us. And we, that's the danger that we have. We want our c- citizens
2: educated for reasons beyond simply playing to the marketplace. We have a democracy to protect here. It ought to be public policy in this country that we provide access to students irrespective of their economic circumstances. And to do that costs something, and it needs to. It needs to be. Provided to some degree by the federal government, it'll leverage a lot of private dollars.
0: Chris, can, yeah, I, I, can I can I can I follow up, Chris? I want to know the results. Well, I, I, Chris, that's uh, if you don't mind. I, I guess I, I'm curious how there is this um, sort of dichotomy. How does an institution like yours show its students, parents, alumni um, that it's getting better, that it's uh, progressing, that the quality of the education has? At least stayed as good as it was, I mean, I guess there is this uh, thirst for measurement, and I understand that that can can really result in in dumbing down in bad effects. but do you agree that there 's a, a a role to be for for assessment, and how do, and how do you do it now, and how do you feel confident
2: there 's a role for assessment, and every institution will find its own way, and if it doesn 't find an adequate way it 's not going to get its students to enroll. Uh, What we would look at at St. John's College uh, might be something quite different from uh, another school. I mean, some of these things, as I say, are very easy to assess and give uh, uh, quantities to. Uh, Liberal education, I don't think, can. So what we're looking for is uh, the evidence in the families. Uh, Students go home to their parents, and their parents call us up and say, I can't believe what's happened to Johnny. I can't believe that Mary is now speaking with some intelligence at the dinner table, and it's—I mean—the stories—it's over and over and over, and I don't get the, the opposite. So that, and we, we we let people hear about these stories. They're they're up on the website. Yeah, John, Johnny
1: graduates place. and goes back home to live with. The <laughs>
0: Here, no, no, behind you. Sorry.
3: <laughs> behind you. Good. Hi, Brian O'Keefe from the Center for College Affordability and Productivity, and I.
0: I going to address that point you just made, Mr. Nelson. Um, it seems to me, though, you're saying is that just leave it up to us and we'll decide if the kids are actually learning. I mean, how do you know if what anybody learned at St. John's College last year? And I think, you know, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute released a report yesterday that said that, uh, you know, Harvard, they, they did a kind of a survey of students and what they were learning in history, and Harvard and Princeton ranked at the bottom of the list, whereas they'll rank at the top of the list of that book that Neil just handed out. And I think... Um, Thing, how did we know that anybody learned anything at St. John's College last year since, I mean, you're going to depend on parents, they anecdotally call well, you yeah, and tell you that. I mean, what, what measurements, what real measurements are we using in, with colleges right now to determine that sort of information? You know, well,
2: There are lots of measurements out there, and okay. some of them do. I can't remember the names of them because we don't use them uh, at St. John's. Collegiate Learning Assessment. Um,
1: Nessie. Nessie. A national survey. The things, the things the commission more or less focused on and recommend, there are really sound new technological ways to measure a variety of skills that a student can acquire. And actually it, it tends to focus on teaching and learning so that at a place like a liberal arts college, they actually would probably shine many ca- cases. Yeah, I, th- I have
2: no doubt that that's what would happen. And the reason we don't do it is that we think that lear- uh, assessment is part of the learning process and that you bring in an assessment uh, to the Uh, classroom, and frankly, it disrupts learning. Uh, That happens to be a very strong position that we take. So what do we do? We have all sorts of internal measures. We talk with our students. We have a student committee on instruction. We have a faculty instruction committee that's working on curriculum and what works and doesn't work. Every single week of the year, they meet from the beginning of time. So there are these constant assessments. We have our accreditation, self-studies, where in our last one we had 97 recommendations for improvement of St. John's College, and we post that right up there on the website. There are lots of those kinds of measures that are in there, and most colleges have them. Most of them are doing that all the time. Next
0: question, uh, back there. Uh, David Corbin. My question is for President Nelson and Chairman Miller. You said, uh, President Nelson, that we ought to abandon the language of the marketplace. And I'm assuming from what you said thereafter that you wanted to begin to appropriate the language of the polis. And part of the language of the polis is who rules, uh, who has knowledge, who can pass down knowledge uh, to others. And I think this is one of the questions that we have when dealing with overhaul of higher (coughs) education. My question for the two of you, since you both have either been trustees or dealt with trustees, is there a role that trustees can play in the overhaul of higher education? Because I, I do believe that it needs to be overhauled. I do share uh, Neil's assessment that uh, federal fixing of the problem is scary yeah. uh, and that St. John's uh, has something right that we ought
2: to uh, imitate. I'll tell you what we do at St. John's with the trustees. We have a committee uh, that's actually uh, quite a, a provocative, interesting committee, a visiting committee. It would be the one in charge of <coughs> educational affairs at most other schools. and. It's that committee's job to ask the college to give an account of itself. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? And show us that you're doing it. And there are many voices on that committee, and we have, therefore, to respond uh, internally to this. And they're a very active committee. Uh, To some of us, it's a bit of a pain. But it's very worthwhile for each of us to be so alert to what we're doing that we give an account, and we get to the end of a sentence and say, you know, I don't know why we're doing that. That's the time to go back and fix it. Uh, Every board should be that active. That's the place where it should happen. You need to have a board that is uh, fresh and that has rotation through it and that has some people who ask the tough questions. That's the place where it needs to happen.
1: I believe governing boards are one of the major uh, targets for the report and for this discussion. I think that is where a lot of decisions should be made, whether it's public or private. It's a duty. People take that on seriously. My experience as a board member at St. John's is in another sense at a graduate school and then six years on the board of a major system that was a microcosm of that and chairman for four years is I got financial statements I'm a sophisticated financial guy that I couldn't understand, couldn't read couldn't develop any conclusion from and some of the people I asked questions about the experts couldn't give me good answers on anything that I really needed to know I mean, I think that's typical of a college and university, and this is a big, complex system. We began to change that by getting information in a form that we needed, and they were responsive. There wasn't any intent or anything. It's just how it evolved. But it also protects the people that are behind the numbers from intervention, and that's really what the academy tends (coughs) to fight for. They want that autonomy. I can't argue with that. On the other hand, I'd like to know what my governing role is. What the right thing is and the right information. When I asked for things about results on student learning or what the research dollars brought in or patient care, there weren't any. There wasn't any data. It wasn't just the University of Texas. There didn't exist any data. Just like uh, the president at Harvard said. So we started making accountability systems for ourselves, and we developed a very effective one. It's not perfect. There always flaws. It's one thing that's going to evolve forever, but it didn't interfere with the institutional or the or the academic people, it gave them a tool actually to manage better. They, they didn't like it. There was first denial, then anger, and then <laughs> acceptance. And it's still a little slow, and it's going to be a while before that becomes part of the culture, but it works if we let it happen. But there's a lot of resistance to that in the academy, particularly for so-called private colleges, and, I, and I'm uncomfortable with that. Can I, have I, to
0: I, let, can I have to let that be the last word? Thank you all for coming. Uh, appreciate your time.